Welcome to the Activist Files, the Center for Constitutional Rights podcast. I'm Ian Head, and I'm here with my co-host, Aliyah Hussein. Just a reminder that if you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, rate us, and share with your friends. We've got a great episode ahead of us today in honor of Pride Month. Senior legal worker Leah Todd interviews Dean Spade, author of Normal Life and professor of law at Seattle University, and CSER staff attorney Chiniere Azie on the legacy of Stonewall 50 years on and what work still needs to be done. Welcome to the Activist Files. I'm Leah Todd, a legal worker at the Center for Constitutional Rights, and I'm joined here by Chinieri Azie, a staff attorney, as well as Dean Spade, professor of law at Seattle University. Welcome to both of you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. We're here in June this month, which of course is well known as Pride Month, and this year has been celebrated as the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall, what's sometimes mentioned as a riot, sometimes mentioned as an uprising, and I think we're reflecting on the things that have happened uh, since then. So if both of you could share your thoughts on what you think the most profound achievements have been in the 50 years since Stonewall for queer and LGBTI people in the U.S., Thanks, Leah, for sort of framing up this reflection on 50 years after Stonewall and sort of where we are as a queer and trans movement. And I think that in a lot of ways, I feel as though we're exactly in the same place that we were 50 years ago insofar as there were trans activists, trans community leaders who were at the forefront of that movement, of that uprising, who were literally putting their bodies on the line to stand up and speak out against police brutality and the criminalization of queer and trans communities in New York City. And 50 years later, I feel like it is still trans activists who are both at the vanguard and are the most vulnerable within the LGBTQ community whose needs and whose enjoyment of rights and just even, you know, life chances really hasn't materially advanced in a lot of ways in 50 years. And so I think especially on the heels of more and more murders of trans people, including Malaysia Booker, who notably had been attacked in this very public and very horrific manner just a month before and had spoken very poignantly about how she felt fortunate to be able to speak out about the violence that she experienced and it not be a memorial for her. And then just one month later, she's just been discovered, you know, gunned down in the middle of the street in Dallas. And Malaysia being just one of several black trans women who've been murdered this year and it just kind of being an increasingly haunting statistic and almost this grieving ritual that we do every year or parts of the community does every year to sort of lay witness to the massacre and the systemic devaluation of black and brown trans lives. I'm sort of caught with this profound sense of grief that so much work feels like it remains. However, I do think what we can celebrate is that there's been an undeniable amount of visibility that queer and trans people have sort of demanded. You know, they've demanded the right to sort of be in public space and to be seen and to be heard. And through telling our stories, there have been gains in the movement for sort of formal equality to me, that is sort of a byproduct, but also what allows me to celebrate again is sort of the, the courageous acts of people just telling their stories and demanding that they be seen and that they be heard. And, you know, with that, there has been some formal gains, but there's still a lot that remains. Yeah, I really appreciate your framing of that, Janiere. I think um, 
for me, whenever we ask ourselves this question, like, has something, has stuff gotten better for, like, targeted or marginalized groups in the U.S., we have to, like, kind of put it in the context of the fact that one of the main things that the U.S. and other forces do is narrate progress about targeted and vulnerable groups as a way of maintaining oppression. So it's always this really fascinating question to ask ourselves. And so for me, it helps to put the things that people think of as LGBTQ progress into context, right? So we might be like, wow, like, compared to the Stonewall era, now sodomy laws are not legitimate in the U.S. That's like a big law change that some people like claim as like a major one of these markers of equality. But in that same 50-year period, we've had a massive, massive growth of the U.S. prison and policing systems and a massive increased militarization of those systems and more and more and more of all people, but especially queer and trans people and especially poor and people of color, queer and trans people are in prison and jail generally, right, for being poor, for um, connection to drugs, for whatever. And so I think that these contexts are useful. Another one is like people claim the victory of same-sex marriage as being recognized. And the hope with that would be that things that people can access through marriage would be more accessible, like, you know, immigration benefits or health benefits or certain kinds of like sharing property with a partner. But in reality, also during the same time, we've had this like massive growth of the wealth divide, especially the racial and gendered wealth divide, a massive increase in immigration enforcement and this huge housing crisis. So like nobody in the country can afford rent if they're getting paid minimum wage. And so the material conditions for actual queer and trans people may not be improving just because of these kind of formal markers. Another example of this is like, right, gays gays and lesbians can serve in the military, but at the same time, we're in these like permanent wars. The defense budget is bigger than it's ever been. Um, And then the military is a good example of an institution that always claims to be making progress. Like, oh, look, now we include black people. Now we include women. Now we, you know, and those progress narratives are part of legitimizing this, you know, deeply illegitimate institution. So to me, I mean, another example of this that I was just thinking of actually is like, you know, maybe maybe some of our kids go to schools that have like a gay and lesbian student group or a a policy on the books that, that says that they shouldn't discriminate against gays and lesbians. But all the people I know who are young are like terrified of being shot in their school. So it's like, and they're parents are more likely to be having housing crisis. And, you know, it's like, how do we put these supposed kind of gains that are often decontextualized into the context of like exactly what Tanira is saying, like how are queer and trans people actually doing, right? And that context requires thinking about this more. And one other thing I would say about this is like part of what happens in the ongoing, you know, vibrant, beautiful struggles of marginalized people is that we get these moments of mainstreaming where the mainstream picks up our struggle and represents us a lot and makes us visible in these limited ways. And the story is now we all feel better about this hated group. Like now people don't hate trans people anymore. Now people don't hate gay people anymore. Or, you know, the story in the U.S. that says like, you know, most people aren't racist anymore. But those are really distortions, right? Because the conditions on the ground for most people are staying the same. Um, Like how can you have a whole country of people who are like, we're not racist anymore, like according to white people, but at the same time conditions for people of color like worsening in all these material ways in terms of criminalization and immigration enforcement and economic divides. So for me, it's this question of how do we like mark that, yes, there are cultural shifts happening. Like even compared to 20 years ago, when I walk around the city I live in, I see more trans people who are out as trans. And that's, you know, heartening that there's some levels of shifts happening. And to be grateful, as Tanira was saying, for all the work and fight that that has taken and still takes to make that possible. And then also look at the conditions of worsening material inequality that are still surrounding all those people's lives and shaping them and and that are causing things like the vulnerability of trans women of color to police violence and to murder because of the fact that housing is so deeply unavailable and people become so much more vulnerable when they don't have 
basic economic security in their lives. So I think it's this complicated thing where it's like we live in this moment of all this kind of propaganda that says that like LGBT people are now like accepted and loved and we've and our, our fight is such a, you know, inspiring, inspiring fight because we've won or something. And yet, you know, we can see in our communities that there's so much ongoing suffering and harm. But the propaganda itself is a sign of how strong our fights have been, at least. So it's like because we're in these deeply harsh, brutal times in the U.S. generally, it makes sense that queer and trans people are, are you know, also suffering severely. Like it makes sense that when there's attacks on abortion, there'll also be, you know, widespread, you know, anti-poor policymaking and criminalization. All these things are go, go together. This is the moment we live in. And at the same time, the fact that there even is propaganda about our movements that it, that tries to mislead is a sign of how strong and powerful our movements are. Um, I mean, just another example of this, like, you know, I, I live in a city with a gay mayor and the mayor before was gay. And like, Lots of people live in cities with gay mayors, and those cities are still, like, building more jails, hiring more cops, like, you know, doing sweeps of homeless encampments, like, you know, in in bed with all the real estate developers so that there's no affordable housing. Like, it's just we have to kind of uh, take these progress markers and think with, with great care. Thank you so much for that, both of you. And I really appreciate how you've contextualized this work. I think this is often seen as sort of a separate issue and a separate movement. And I think it's so important we're talking about this in the context of policing, in the context of housing, in the context of immigration and criminalization. So I really appreciate that. And I think what's so important to think about, too, is how queer and trans people of color are at the forefront of movements working on all these issues. And I think sometimes we don't always see how that nexus really is centering people and all the work that's happening when we talk about these issues. So what suggestions would you have for shifts in how we're doing this work? Or maybe you can speak about the ways that you've tried to shift how you do this work to really bring in and, and center those narratives, knowing that that really this this nexus is what's important. I'm inspired by a, a long line of queer and trans leaders and elders who come from communities of color and who have always both been at the margins and sort of looked to the margins as a litmus test for how our communities are doing and with an appreciation that our society is only as healthy or is only as vital as the health and well-being of sort of the most um, the most vulnerable members of, of, our, of our human societies. And so, you know, I think it's sort of um, making intersectionality a praxis and not being content to declare victory as a LGBTQ rights movement if gay men in urban centers who come from affluent backgrounds um, feel as though they have substantial enjoyment of sort of, you know, the rights that we should all be bestowed as, you know, just based on our, our humanity. I think it's really gauging progress based on how disabled trans women who have criminal records, like how are they doing? You know, how are people who our society has been content to throw away for a, a very long time, you know, and how as a movement can we really claim victory if trans women in this country, black trans women still have a life expectancy of under 35 years because we are content to deny them employment. The government announced that they plan to repeal legal regulations and protections that at least afforded trans people safe spaces and, and homeless shelters. The government, in the same same breath, announced that they're going to repeal laws that protect people's ability to access health care on a you know equal basis. And so when we're literally communicating at the highest levels of sort of government that trans lives don't matter and that 
these communities are expendable. You know, again, I think it's just, to me, it's a wake-up call that we, you know, it's either all of us or none of us, right? We can't leave huge segments of the community behind to fend for themselves and feel as though as a movement, you know, we've gotten rights, we've gotten um, anything tantamount to to liberation. Yeah, I, I mean, I really agree with that. I think that, um, you know, during the time that I've been, like, doing queer and trans activist work for the last, you know, 20 plus years or whatever, what a lot of what people I've been working with have been fighting is the fact that, like, you know, a, a gay and lesbian rights movement that was actually quite conservative emerged and became, like, kind of the most visible, well-funded gay and lesbian rights movement. And that movement was pro-police, pro-military, and, and pro-marriage. And that was really different than a lot of the, you know, much more left formations that had existed um, and have existed and still exist that were, you know, um, queer and trans movements that included economic justice, a fight against military imperialism, a fight against racism. That has been a lot of what the fight has been in my lifetime. Like, you know, like, no, we don't want to serve in the military. We want to end the military. No, we don't want hate crimes laws that increase the power of the prosecutor and police. We want to get the police out of our communities and get our people out of prison. So there's been this, like, this real fight that I think both Janira and I are talking about, about kind of where the priorities are, what counts as progress. And so I think that fight is ongoing. I think another piece of that is that that more... Um, I would consider it right-wing formation of gay and lesbian rights that, that has been the more visible version is very focused on the idea that you win when you have something written in law about your group that says it's part of the good group. Um, and you win when you get like uh, mainstream representations uh, um, in the media that say your group is the good group. And what the left queer and transformation says is you win when people's lives are better. Um, and you win when, as Janir is just saying, like the most vulnerable people um, are, um, you know, out of danger of losing their lives. And so I think that whole piece is the work that still has to be done. Part of that is that I think there's a lot of work we are doing right now and a lot of people are doing to fight against what's called pinkwashing, which is like when politicians or governments or institutions say they're like gay friendly or good on gay or like, um, you know, wrap a rainbow flag around whatever like messed up thing they're actually doing in order to justify it. So that could be like the New York Police Department having rainbow cop cars, or it could be like, you know, um, your your mayor or your um, you know governor saying they're gay friendly, but meanwhile they're building these new prisons and jails or working with ICE. Like that, that's a big piece. Is like seeing how our movements are used as propaganda for right wing strategies. Like that's a huge piece of work we're still doing. I think another, you know, and also just helping people read that kind of propaganda that your politician can say they like love Muslims or love black people or whatever, and still be like, we have to read what are their actual actions and 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 really build power to push for outcomes we want. I think for me, a really big thing I, I'm really trying to encourage people to do in this really scary moment of the Trump administration and worsening conditions is be part of mutual aid projects, right? Like there's a kind of push to just show our a solidarity with each other by posting things online. But actually what really shows our solidarity is when we like are writing letters to prisoners, when we're like, you know, part of child care collectives, when we're part of packing the court for people facing criminalization, when we're part of supporting immigrants facing deportation, like when we're directly supporting each other in the face of these brutal conditions, when we're opening up our homes, people coming out of prison, like there's so much direct mutual aid work we can be doing that I think actually builds our movements and builds our power. And, and I think it's important to kind of move away from purely representation related work. And the last thing I would say is I think that like all of our work has to tie in to the significant, to actually facing collapse that is coming around climate crisis. Like the fact that 
our work is like issue issue siloed and we're like, oh, we're over here doing gay and lesbian work, just going to talk about this and just trans work and not actually tying into the broad questions of survival for all people on this planet is very concerning to me. And that's the way I've seen a lot of that work in my lifetime. And to be honest, I've practiced that work in those ways often. And so for me, I'm trying to like really de-silo, look at where I'm still disconnected from the context and like what's more clearly our context than the actual planet we live on and the question of whether or not our societies are going to collapse because of, um, you know, climate crisis. I think Dean said it exactly right. I think one one thing that I do want to highlight, however, and it's why, you know, in my role at the Center for Constitutional Rights, I devote a lot of um, time and energy to trans advocacy in particular, is that I think there's a way that the trans community hasn't even benefited from pinkwashing. And I say that with irony intended, but I feel like there's actually sort of this way that you know, for decades now, the trans community has been viewed as completely expendable by both the left and the right, and a group that can be exploited for, to galvanize various causes, you know, or that, in the case of the more conservative LGBT movement, that threatens objectives and threatens legal strategies that are that are best achieved or that can be easily, most easily achieved through sort of assimilation um, assimilationist uh, narratives, which is to say things like, you know, gay folks are just like you. We like to play golf. We also take our kids to the park and so forth and so on, you know, and so therefore we should have rights because, you know, we're, we're all the same. We're just the same as you, you know, and, and I say that because um, I was living in Alabama right after the lead up to the, the Trump election and what I saw there kind of firsthand was how basically in the wake of um, the gay marriage decision at the Supreme Court, you know, the word basically got out. There was a coordinated effort on the part of the right to say, hey, Americans are still completely freaked out by trans people. You know, the LGBT movement has not tried to bring them into the fold meaningfully, which I think is true. And this is an Achilles heel that we can exploit, right? We can exploit gender panic in this country to shore up conservative causes. And so you saw this push to sort of talk about, you know, trans women as predators who are lurking in bathrooms. You saw all sorts of, you know, initiatives kind of wielded at basically breaking up, you know, kind of disrupting the the sort of quote unquote progress of the LGBTQ movement. Um, although admittedly, again, that was probably arguably just the LGB, LGB movement, you know, in, in form and function. And so sitting here and kind of seeing how the government is just comfortably, confidently writing animus into the law with respect to trans communities, it's not that I find legal formalism as sort of a real strategy for liberation for our communities, but I, I think it's significant that trans people are really just being used as a pawn and that ultimately what we see is that our society has made very little progress when it comes to recognizing the humanity of others when we aren't relying on sort of assimilationist tropes, you know? So the idea that trans people don't have to be just like you, but that maybe we should all stop policing gender and that we should stop um, giving people girl lessons and boy lessons and reifying 
gender categories and expectations and creating scripts that people have to live by. Like we haven't had that conversation, right? We haven't had a conversation with men, you know, cisgender men, that it's okay to sort of not be hyper-masculine, right? It's, it's toxic masculinity that is getting, you know, trans women across the country killed. It's, it's the lessons that we're teaching and imparting men that men have to, you know, like women and women have to have vaginas and so forth and so on. And, you know, anything aberrant, anything that any attempt to kind of color out the lines is basically something that death is better, right? That it's, you are more manly killing a trans woman than admitting that she's your lover. And so I wish I had more answers, but, you know, those are some of the things I'm thinking about at Stonewall 50. I think it's so interesting. You know, one of the things that's so complicated about following the propaganda of pinkwashing is that propaganda is really inconsistent and can be, right? So it's like um, when you said that thing, that question about like, you know, to what degree is pinkwashing happening around trans people, the thing that popped into my mind immediately was the ways that the Israeli military and the Israeli government use trans pinkwashing specifically. So, right, like they love to be like, we let trans people serve in our military, so therefore our military is a site of liberation as a way of trying to cover over the realities that, that the Israeli military is, you know, used to engage in a genocidal, um, you know, colonial project um, to displace Palestinians and so, and, and destroy and kill them. Um, and so that, you know, that includes like there is, you know, for a long time there's been this a trans officer in the Israeli military who is like trotted all around the U.S. to do speaking engagements um, that are just about propaganda to to sort of spread this message to people in the U.S. that the Israeli military is this wonderful site of um, of liberation for trans people. So that's an instance where you see a really right wing force using trans people for pinkwashing propaganda, not not because they care at all about trans people, right? Like pinkwashing is never actually about what's going to happen for the gay and lesbian people or the trans people. It's always just about how does this talking point borrow feelings and ideas that these movements have built about liberation or about progressivism and get and have that can that kind of sentiment be stolen by an institution that's trying to legitimize itself? In the U.S., I more often see politicians who actually want to be considered progressive, so who want to differentiate themselves from Trump, but are actually still, I would consider, very regressive, right? Like, you know, people who are building jails, who are, um, you know, working with ICE or who are, so they, they might want to say, look, I'm so progressive, vote for me. I'm distinguishing myself from like the Trump camp. And I, and so now I'm going to say, I like trans people. And now I'm going to say, I like Muslims. Like this is the way this looks like in Washington state where I live with a lot of, you know, these kind of fake progressive politicians who are just doing the same terrible policymaking that is harming poor people, people of color, immigrants in our state, you know, including and especially queer and trans people who are targeted inside those systems. So that's what's interesting to me about just trying to track these false progress narratives is that, A, remembering that they don't benefit the people who in whose names they're happening, and also to see, I see trans pinkwashing stuff as kind of the cutting edge of it, right? Like, there's been a longer history of people doing this with gay and lesbian stuff because gays and lesbians have been more mainstreamed in this way. But just remembering, of course, that these kinds of moments when they say they love us don't actually benefit us is such a hard lesson that we need um, to share with each other so badly because I think it really works on people. They're like, oh, I have to vote for the lesbian mayoral candidate or the whatever because I'm part of this community. But like, it, where is she on the issues that matter to people's survival, right? Like, and there's a way in which that kind of um, like bait and switch is so um, powerful now. And I think we're going to see it more and more around um, around trans stuff. I mean, even just the fact that like, 
Trump wants to make war in Iran, so sometimes he makes noise about how Iran treats gays and lesbians, even though he does not, you know, of course, his, his, his entire administration is homophobic and transphobic. Like that, that ability to be completely inconsistent is actually part of how propaganda works. I really appreciate how you both kind of contextualize where we were and how this exploitation of the community is is not benefiting the community and in fact has caused so many negative repercussions. And in particular, I appreciate you talking about the narratives that we're not talking about when we do all this pinkwashing, including toxic masculinity and what it means for cisgender men. You both are obviously doing so much incredible work and we've only barely touched on it. As you continue to do that work, which is obviously sparking shifts and change. What are you kind of seeing on the horizon and what are you recommitting to as ways to work towards these visions we have of of what a truly vibrant and safe and loving future looks like for our communities? Be really frank, you know, obviously my work is the the same work I'm always doing, you know, (laughs) range of of work that's related to prison abolition and, um, you know, work against U.S. military imperialism. Yeah, so when I think about the horizon of my work, you know, I'm thinking about the things I'm doing like right now this week. I'm really excited about this work we've been doing for a couple of years. This project called Queer Trans Warband, which is a toolkit for people to do anti-military recruitment and anti-militarism work generally at queer and trans events in their own cities and towns and counties. You know, we saw this real rise in these representations of trans military service being this like wonderful, proud thing in the wake of Trump's trans military ban. And What's missing from that conversation is, of course, that like the military is a terrible, horrible job and also that no one should do it and that the U.S. military is the largest source of violence and pollution in the world. And so we've created this toolkit and I'm, you know, we're doing new sticker designs this year and new poster designs for that. And I'm really excited about that work. And that's just like on with me right now because we're doing the prep now. Um, and of course, you know, ongoing fights that I'm involved in locally and nationally to stop expansion of immigration enforcement and you know, new new sites of prisons and policing. Um, all of those expansion fights are always something we're fighting. That is such a vital work that I really think everybody can be involved in because it's happening in every state. But I think on the longer horizon for our movements, the real question for me is about climate crisis and collapse. Um, I, I personally believe that we are moving towards collapse of the quote-unquote normal structures of society that we are used to because we've gone so far with climate change. And there's so much denial in all of our communities locally and in, you know, broader our broader political movements about this. It's so hard to face and people don't have good information about it. And I think there's a lot of ways in which it's downplayed. Um, and so for me, I've really been trying to let that in more and ask myself, especially because so many people I know have been affected, like my friends in Puerto Rico who've been affected by Hurricane Maria, who've already experienced kind of like the end of the world, like happened there, you know, Um, and other people I know who've been, you know, people experienced Hurricane Katrina or all these moments where we already see it. And then I think it's going to happen much more broadly in a very deep way. That has been leading me to ask myself this really core question, which is what aspects of the work I do assume that the existing systems are going to continue and what work would I be doing or what work would I continue doing or what work would I start doing if I faced, if I divested from the belief that these existing systems are going to be the systems in place for the rest of my life? Um, and so this has really been a very profound shaping set of questions for me as an activist in the last 12 months. Um, I'm really looking at this question of what does it mean to prepare and adapt? What kinds of skills and capacities um, do our communities need to be prepared to have more self-determination, more ability to share, more ability to deal with conflicts? in the face of the coming changes. You know, what do we want to have in place when the lights go out or the storm comes or 
everything gets further militarized in the face of crisis? What keeps us safer? And part of this for me is about just like really divesting from any strategies that are about like making people in power like us better or say nice things about us and towards um, strategies that are really about redistributing the basics of well-being and building the, the new social relations we need in moments when crisis emerges. And so really studying like what worked between people in Puerto Rico in the face of Hurricane uh, Maria, how did they help each other survive? What didn't work? What did people who've been through that wish they'd had in place in their apartment building or in their neighborhood or in their city? And that those kinds of questions for me, it's really important for us to ask them as queer and trans people because vulnerable people are often targets and experience a lot of harm during big crises or big disasters, right? Like we can look at these histories and know that like sexual violence increases during crises and all kinds of violence. And so what, how do we specifically want to be plugged into this question of preparation and adaptation for this, you know, really significant moment that I think people who are alive today are going to be living through. I share Dean's interest in sort of (laughs) mapping out what, feels like sort of an increasingly dystopian present and sort of looming future and thinking through ways that as a community we can be more resilient, more resourceful and really, you know, demand our right to kind of continue to exist with, you know, our basic minimums being met. I feel within my legal work here at CCR, something I've been very focused on is crafting strategies to respond to what I have come to term as sort of the discrimination to incarceration pipeline. And um, for me, I, I conceive that as the ways that discrimination, exclusion in the home and in schools, from the workplace, has pushed you know generations of trans people into, in particular, LGBT people, you know, writ large, I think are also impacted by this that has pushed them into criminalized economies, survival economies that expose them to lots of policing and to experiences of incarceration that are ultimately have kind of unmitigated brutality towards them because, once again, we really haven't gotten to the bottom of misogyny and, you know, toxic masculinity and the ways that um, non-normativity really does get policed in society by, you know, so many of its members. And so, um, you know, that has given me kind of a, a keen interest in the looming cases concerning whether trans and other um, LGBT individuals have protections under existing laws regulating sex discrimination. An unfavorable interpretation by the Supreme Court would mean that there is no barrier at the federal level, to people being denied housing, being denied employment, being denied, again, sort of the means of survival, admittedly, in you know, a flawed um, kind of capitalist market <laughs> economy. Nonetheless, um, having worked with people who have been incarcerated and really seen firsthand the depravity that experience involves if you're trans and oftentimes denied access to health care, placed in, in housing where you're extremely vulnerable to rape and sexual assault, having um, corrections officers sort of mock you and be well aware of the vulnerability you face, but communicate things like, well, you're trans, what did you expect? Or, you know, are you sure you didn't ask for it? I don't know. It's, it's just kind of, I'm looking for ways to continue disrupting those systems, at least in my lifetime, and 
hope that the generations to come wake up to a society that gives them better life chances, you know, and in a way that doesn't leave anyone behind, which is my concern for our first 50 years after Stonewall. Thank you so much for all of your thoughts and reflections and really helpful framing on where we are. I've really appreciated our conversation. So thank you both, Dean and Chineri, for being here. Thank you. Thank you. And now a roundup of some of the headlines here at the Center for Constitutional Rights. First off, we launched our new open records project, FOIA for the Movement. Ian, you've been spearheading this effort, so tell us about it. Thanks, Aaliyah. With the Open Records Project, we're providing resources and training on the process of making federal Freedom of Information Act, or FOIA, requests. We're also providing tips on making state open records requests as well. Our goal is to help movement partners, activists, and advocates use open records requests to challenge oppressive systems of power. We published a guide called FOIA Basics for Activists, so please check out this new resource on our website. That's awesome. Congrats, Ian. You've been doing a lot of work on FOIA cases for a long time, and the resources are great. Speaking of FOIA, a request we filed two years ago is now going to litigation. The request demanded government records concerning the appointments, vetting, and conflicts of interest for members of Puerto Rico's undemocratic Federal Fiscal Control Board. This governing body is the latest example of unelected, unaccountable oversight boards that are increasingly deployed to strip decision-making authority from communities of color. The more we can learn about them, the more we can help communities challenge them. Latino Justice and San Juan-based Center for Investigative Journalism are litigating the request. Another undemocratic trend we're seeing is the wave of anti-protest laws sweeping the country. We recently worked with local groups in Louisiana to challenge a new law there that makes it a felony punishable by up to five years in prison to be on or even near Louisiana pipelines without permission. The oil and gas industry worked with the right-wing ALEC, the American Legislation Exchange Council, to get this law passed. This law is a way to chill and discourage anti-pipeline speech and activism, but almost anyone can find themselves on the wrong side of this law because there are 125,000 miles of pipelines in Louisiana. The so-called critical infrastructure law is part of a national effort to crack down on environmental activists. Critical infrastructure bills have been introduced 23 times in 18 states since 2017, 14 times in 2019 alone. If you're planning on being at Netroots Nation in Philly this July, you can check out our trainings and panels on the Open Records Project, Challenging Alec, and more. And last, a big welcome to our 16 new summer interns, We have 11 law students taking part in the Ella Baker Summer Internship Program and five undergraduate students working with various program staff on some exciting projects. The Real AF. The Real AF. The Real AF. Yeah, I just need you to say The Real AF. The Real AF. It's The Real AF. I'm here with Alex Webster, our new communications assistant. Hi, Alex. Hey, how's it going? Good. Are you ready to answer some tough questions? I am. I've got my thinking cap on, so okay. here we go. Would you rather sleep in or start your day when your alarm goes off? I would rather start my day when my alarm goes off. I actually like don't set many alarms, so if I actually did set an alarm, I'd probably have something important to do. <laughs> Do you hit snooze ever? I, uh, 
I do hit snooze, and if I do, it'll be like three snoozes in a row. So I really need to be up. Like if I if it's going off, I need to get out of bed. <laughs> Would you rather go on a beach vacation or explore a new city? I feel like typically a vacation in my head is like going off somewhere and not having to do anything at all. So. I would want to say beach vacation, but knowing myself, I'm really somebody who would rather go to like a new city and explore like the food scene, the nightlife. I'd probably want to go to a couple of cafes and just like people watch. <laughs> that's more like my my pace. Any city that's on the bucket list? Yeah, so I'd really like to go to Bangkok. I'm actually watching this like Netflix series about street food, and it reminded me of when I used to live in China, and there was like street food everywhere, and it was like incredibly good and really cheap, and so it's really making me want to go to Southeast Asia. What show? Uh, it's called Street Food. Oh, it's really good. Check it out. Would you rather go to brunch with the Fab Five or the cast of Will and Grace? Okay, so like they had that whole reboot of Will and Grace, and I watched the first episode and I was not into it. <laughs> I was really not feeling the politics. It didn't age all that well. I don't really watch Queer Eye. I do think that like they've touched on some topics that are a little bit more relevant to the modern era. And I mean, the group seems like a sweet bunch of people. So, have you watched any of it? I've only watched like a couple of episodes in the first season, and I like follow up on like a couple like reading articles yeah. about the newer episodes and like there was one where like Janelle Monet stepped in and like got I don't know it's like a hundred thousand dollars for this woman to go to college and I was just like okay they're like making impact whereas Will and Grace I don't know what they're doing. Would you rather hang out with your past self or your future self? <laughs> okay my past self is like super problematic so I don't even want to think about like we <laughs> we are forging ahead and we're not looking back. Um, I'm looking forward to my future self. They're going to be like super accomplished, very confident, uh, have lots of great stories to tell. And I'm just going to be like, what do I need to know? Like, how do I get to be you, me, then? <laughs> I think you are many of those things now. But I, but I think we all love looking forward. That's yeah. hopefully the, the better version of ourselves Absolutely. always evolving. Would you rather read an awesome book or watch a good movie? I am a very visual person and actually like... As much as I love books, I get really tired when, it, like, for some reason, I like open up the pages and I'm like, "Wow, I need a nap." <laughs> and so, I would really rather watch a good movie because it engages so many senses. It has like a good soundtrack. I think that, you know, really profound and impactful theater should like move you in so many different ways. So, movie. <laughs>